Our sermon today is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 6, just setting the context of the, uh, the book and what we're going about today. We remember that there are three great dimensions to our worship. The first, obviously, is private worship. That's the first sphere of worship. That's us by ourselves. That's when we enter privately into the presence of the Lord and we read his word and we pray to him and we sing his praises by ourselves. Um, and we talked about that, that personal prayer and devotion last week. This week we are now discussing uh, an equally important but sadly neglected sphere of worship. If there is one sphere of worship that's neglected the most in America today, it's this one, and that is family worship. This was not always the case, and it was certainly not God's intention that it would be. Family worship is something that was always vital to the life of God's people, and we'll see that uh, God made plans for his people to worship him in spirit and in truth as families as well as in the third sphere, corporate worship. Now, we know eventually uh, we are all destined for a corporate worship that will go on forever. When we uh, live with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth after the work of redemption is truly completed, we know that we will be worshiping the Lord face to face with all of his people. And what a great day that will be. But in the meantime, we practice for that. We practice as we gather here on Sunday. And we learn how to corporately worship. Uh, At least it was the Lord's intention that we would in families. And we'll see that. We'll see how he made provision for his people's needs, his covenant people, even as they were preparing to enter into the promised land. We know that uh, as the people of God came uh, up to the Jordan River, they were on the, uh, the far side of it, about to come into the, uh, the promised land. Moses had led the people as far as he was allowed to go. They were about to enter into the promised land. And the interesting thing is he doesn't give them a manual of tactics on how to fight the people they are about to meet there. He knows that if the Lord goes with them and they are faithful to him, they won't need it. The Lord will be with them. He'll be their strong tower and he will be the one who gives them victory. He will drive the people out, as he said, like hornets going before them. But what he is anxious about, obviously, is their faithfulness to the Lord in the promised land that he's giving them. So he gives them instructions on how to live as God's covenant people in that land to come, how to maintain their worship, how to know that he is God, and how, most importantly, to pass that on to the coming generation so that it would not merely be one generation entering in and then the knowledge of the Lord ceasing. And so he uh, preaches a series of sermons to them about that subject. Uh, And we're going to see part of that, a very important part of that in Deuteronomy 6. But before we read Deuteronomy 6, let's approach his face. Please join me. Sovereign Lord, I do pray now that you would be with us here today and that you would help us to understand your word and to apply it in our own lives. We know, O Lord, that this Bible that we're about to read from is a, a sure and true history of your work of redemption in the world. From the very beginning... Uh, Lord, you had intended that you would redeem us at the highest possible cost. In Genesis 3.15, you promised immediately after the fall that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And surely in the fullness of time, your son came and did exactly that. But we know, O Lord, that there is work yet to be done. Although Christ has won the victory, we are involved in that, uh, that great mopping up operation and also the ingathering. Help us then, O Lord, to be wary 
Help us to remember Christ's words to us to be as wily as serpents and gentle as doves at the same time. Help us, therefore, to learn to be rightly wily now, especially in the way that we live our lives here in this fallen world. Help me, O Lord, to preach today. I know I can't change minds myself, and I know, O Lord, I can't even keep people awake. I'm praying, Lord, that you will do that, that you will cause people to, to pay attention when your word is being read. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'll be reading the entire chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you. Lest the anger, lest the anger rather, of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you, and that you may go in and possess the good land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to cast out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has spoken. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? And you shall say to your son, We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe, against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. Then he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in to give us the land of which he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Just a little while after, uh, just a generation or two after those words were delivered by Moses, of course, the people of Israel had been brought into the promised land. They had subdued the people. 
The Lord had kept his promise going before them. He had cast down cities. We remember the walls of Jericho had fallen straight down after the Lord's people had gone around it. And even though they had disobeyed him in taking some of the plunder there, he also gave them AI. And then he broke the power of the Southern Confederation that stood against them. And time and time again, he stood with his people. He gave them victory. He did bring them into that promised land. A slave people, a people who had no power of their own, were given a land to dwell in, a land that was good, a land of milk and honey. And all of the Lord's promises were carried out. And he gave them strict instructions on what to do through his servant Moses. And then later on, through Moses' helper and servant Joshua, He told them how to live in that land, how it might go well for them in the land that they were being given to possess. And yet, just a little while later on, in the book of Judges, we read the following, starting with verse 7 of chapter 2. Judges 2, 7. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old, and they buried him within the border of his inheritance at timnath Harris in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaash. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. Now what happened? What happened in the time between Moses delivering those instructions, those clear instructions, proclaiming the Shema from the Hebrew, hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. How did they go from from that moment where they were on, so to speak, the doorstep of glory to a point where they had fallen so low that they were serving the balls? What did what went wrong? Did the fathers teach their children to worship the balls? Did they say to themselves, what we're going to do now is we're going to forsake everything that Moses ever told us to do. We're going to go in exactly the opposite direction. The answer is no. No, they didn't do that. But they didn't do something else. They didn't follow Moses' instructions to the letter. Clearly, there was a breakdown in that communication of the faith from one generation to the other. Now, we need to remember that the Lord had made provision for the spiritual needs of his people. He had created for them, obviously. He had given them the tabernacle of meeting, a place where all the tribes, no matter where they were in Israel, they might come to and they might celebrate the great feasts of redemption. There were three feasts every year that every male Israelite was supposed to come back for. There was a place where the sacrifices for, for sin were given. It was a place where the word of God was proclaimed on a regular basis. But It was difficult to get to, and you would only go there a certain number of times in a year. The Lord knew himself that if the religion of the people of God, a religion based on his revelation, was to continue on, it couldn't simply come through the tabernacle. It was absolutely impossible that the people of Israel would be sustained on irregular visits to to the tabernacle, the place where they were meeting with God. No, it 
also couldn't simply come from the instruction of the Levites, even though he put them in cities in the various tribes so the people could be instructed and the law could be interpreted and they could be pointed constantly. We remember that biblical religion, Old Testament religion, types and shadows and forms was all designed to point them in the direction of Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah. But the Lord knew as well that they could not be sustained by that. How then would they be sustained? How then would biblical religion continue? How would the people of Israel, the coming generations, know the Lord their God? The answer was contained in what we read in Deuteronomy 6, that fathers would diligently be priests of their own household, that they would pastor, that is, shepherd the flocks, the little flocks given to them. And if the father wasn't there, then the mother would take over those duties as well. And then they would raise up another generation that would know the Lord their God. But did that happen? Apparently not. Apparently there was a breakdown in that. And it should have been abundantly obvious that it would happen. The Lord warned, you're going into a land filled with people who don't worship me. That's the default. So if we look at our nation right now, okay, we're not, we're, we've moved away from the Bible and we're talking about the covenant people of God today. And we ask, what is going on? Are we as the people of God growing stronger? Are, is our knowledge of the doctrine contained within the Bible growing greater? Is our devotion greater and more abundant than it ever was? Well, brothers and sisters, I have to tell you, I can, I can name countless statistics, and I, I don't want to bore you. I love, in one sense, I love statistics, uh, except when they're horrifying. And the statistics regarding Christians are horrifying at this point in time. We learn that perhaps 20%, if we are particularly blessed, of the children of the church will go on to embrace the God of their fathers. What has happened to us? It used to be the case in the 19th century that 80% of the children of the church would go on to embrace. Now we've, we've exactly flipped it. 80% will leave. And the church is being reduced. I know of churches where, although the word is, is still being proclaimed, the majority of the members are over 65. There are no young people. The church is not replicating. What has happened? And I believe that one of the great culprits in all of this is the breakdown of family worship. Family worship used to be a component, a part, a living part of every Christian denomination in the United States. Even Roman Catholics and Anglicans, people who didn't come out of the Reformation. They, well, forgiveness, uh, I should ask my Anglican brothers for forgiveness, who didn't come completely out of the Reformation. <laughs> um, they still practiced family worship. They understood that if the faith was to be passed on, it had to be passed on by households. And now what's going on? I'll give you an example from the world of politics. I'm sorry, but I can't think of a better example of, uh, of what's going on at the moment. There was a, uh, a recent change, as, as you know, um, Nancy Pelosi is, is no longer going to be the Speaker of the House next year. So there was a, uh, a farewell ceremony, and one of the people who attended there was one of the other uh, ex-speakers of the House, John Boehner. John Boehner, uh, who is nominally a Republican, uh, gave a speech. Um, and during that speech, uh, he said the following, my girls told me, tell the speaker how much we admire her. Boehner said, choking back tears as he spoke, 
as if you could te- couldn't tell, my girls are Democrats. Now, I mention this because it talks about something that's going, or it gives us an example of something that's happening in our own age. Now, if we were to reverse the situation, and we, it was Nancy Pelosi who was saying farewell, if she had made the comment, my girls are Republicans, it would have been with horror in her voice. It would have been something like this. <laughs> it's terrible just to tell you. It's the worst possible. Is your family okay? No, my family aren't. Are your kids sick? No, no, it's worse than that. Have they got a terminal illness? No, no, no. Are they about to die? No. They're Republicans. You know, and there would have been, <gasps> the, the press would have gasped in horror. Oh, poor Nancy. But John Boehner does it laughing. Why? Well, because it's not that important to him, clearly. Him passing on his values to the next generation, maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. Does it really matter? But brothers and sisters, I fear that too many Christians have exactly the same attitude about the next generation. But your enemies, your spiritual enemies, do not. They have their agenda for the next generation. And their agenda is, unfortunately, the status quo. If we do not raise up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, they will become pagans. Just as surely as if we do not raise up our children, or as if the Israelites did not raise up their children, they would end up literal pagans. It should never have been the case that someone in Israel would say, well, as you all know, my children are Molech worshippers. People would be aghast, or at least they should have been aghast. But increasingly, their children were Molech worshippers. They were given over to worshipping <laughs> false gods. And why was this such a disaster? Well, because there was only one way of salvation, brothers and sisters. Only one way that we would be reconciled to God. Only one way that the faith once for all delivered to the saints could be passed on. And brothers and sisters, it is my conviction that until we feel in our hearts that something awful is happening, until we are absolutely motivated to begin the process once again of teaching our children the way that they should go, raising them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, impressing upon them the necessity of closing with Christ, that nothing will change if we simply expect, for instance, the world to make our children into Christians, we are sadly deceived. That is not going to happen. They are not learning, unless you are specifically sending them to a Christian school, they are not learning Christianity in school. They're not even learning any longer a a basically Christian worldview. They are learning atheistic materialism every day. They're soaked in it. The culture is anti-Christian. Our culture today is as pagan at its core and its assumptions as the culture that the Israelites were moving into. The gods of the land were false and the worshipers were false and that's what we live amongst today. And nobody, nobody is going to be able to teach your children the truth if you don't do it. But surely the pastor will teach them the truth. Oh yes, I will try. I absolutely will. But if you think that with one hour of preaching where statistics tell us maybe 10% is absorbed, if I'm going to make your children into Christians with that, it's, it's not going to happen. Well, okay, there's the pastor, and then there's Dave Mullen on Wednesday. 
the two of them working in concert, they'll make our children into Christians. Ah, now we've increased it to two hours a week. <coughs> Will that be enough? No. Your children absorb more than two hours of advertising in a week. We're not going to be able to teach them a Christian worldview. And here's the other thing. It's not just a matter, notice this from Deuteronomy, it's not just a matter of teaching them these things. It's a matter of living them out before them. If you told them, children, we are to worship the Lord our God, and then didn't do it yourself, the lesson that they would learn is, uh, here in this family, we say one thing and do another. And I'm going to live according to the way that we act, not what we say. It's rather like the parent who tells the child, while chain smoking, don't smoke cigarettes, kids, they'll kill you. Hand me my pack, if you would, over there. They learn the lesson pretty quickly from that example. Now, we, we desperately need to recover, therefore, family worship. Thomas Brooks put it well when he said, a family without prayer is like a house without a roof, open and exposed to all storms. And if we have not heard the word of the Lord and built our house upon the solid rock of doing what he says, we will fall when those storms come. And you remember, brothers and sisters, that when you bring a child for baptism, as you should, you take vows. I'll give you one of the vows that you take on a regular basis when you bring children for baptism. Do you now covenant and promise in humble reliance on the grace of God to bring up your child to love God and to serve him to the end that your child may come to commit his life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. What does that mean? That means that you will take on the responsibility of the religious education and upbringing of your child. So even if they refuse the faith, they will know the faith that they're refusing. That it will be something that they deliberately do. One of the sad things today is that many of the children who are raised nominally within the church don't even understand the faith that they're rejecting. That they are, they're choosing the world for. And we understand that Proverbs 22.6, which says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it, cuts in two different directions. If we bring up our children knowing the Lord, setting him before them day by day, both by what we say and what we do, then there is that promise of the Lord that the children probably will grow up to know and to love him. But if we set before them, if we train them up in the way of the world then they won't depart from that later on either. They'll continue on in that direction. One of the biggest problems that we have today then is that we simply do not know what the Word teaches. We do not study it, we do not absorb it, and we do not pass it on. And this is not because there are not enough Bibles in the United States. There are places where people don't know what the Word teaches because they don't have complete Bibles. And when they get them, they are overjoyed to have the Word of God in their hands. Here in the United States... Surveys tell us that we still, even in this day and age, and it's amazing to think about this, there is still an average of 3.9 Bibles in every single house here. We have a surfeit of Bibles. But I would hate to find out what the stats are for how many of those Bibles are actually ever read, ever opened up. We've gone generations now where the majority of parents have not sat down on a regular basis and opened up the Word of God and explained it. They have not sat their family down on a regular basis. We will talk about how to go about doing that. But it's more simply than reading a few words of Scripture or having a Bible around the house. 
I know of missionaries who've gone to uh, uh, places in South America that were affected by uh, folk Catholicism, and they said one of the things that you will often see is a shrine where there's actually a Bible, and there's like candles on top of it and stuff like that. It's open, uh, but nobody ever reads it. It's as though the presence of the Bible itself <laughs> is going to have some sort of aura of influence within the house. Of course, that's not how it works. You have to open it up. You have to read it. And then when it comes to children, do your children understand the great doctrines of our religion by themselves? No. What do you have to do then? You have to teach them. You have to explain it. Like any other subject on the face of the planet, you have to teach them well. Now, I was born uh, at the end of the 1960s, beginning of the 1970s, in a far, far more Christian environment than we live in today. But my parents did not teach me the word. Yes, twice a year, usually, they dragged me to church, Christmas and Easter. I would always be in a church, but... I was always hearing the same verses preached on, very lackadaisically, I might add. And nobody bothered to explain what all of these things meant. So even as an adult, I had vague knowledge of what was contained within the Bible, but I didn't understand it, and I didn't understand how it hung together. I did not understand the, the, the way that the Old Testament and the New Testament were integrated, and I have to tell you, the majority of my friends didn't either. And so what were they doing? They were, they were living in a society that was kind of in the afterglow of Christianity. They had a worldview that was inherited, but they didn't know how it was connected to, to religion or anything like that. Now we live in a society where the afterglow is faded of, of Christianity, and we are moving into uh, the, the, a time when uh, the world's being made darker by the lights of twisted science, to paraphrase Churchill. The light of Christianity is fading and so what do we need? Well, Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it very well when he said, we deeply want a revival of domestic religion. The Christian family was the bulwark of godliness in the days of, Pur of the Puritans. But in these evil times, hundreds of families of so-called Christians have no family worship, no restraint upon growing sons, and no wholesome instruction or discipline. How can we hope to see the kingdom of our Lord advance when his own disciples do not teach his gospel to their own children? Oh, Christian men and women, be thorough in what you do and know and teach. Let your families be trained in the fear of God and be yourselves holiness unto the Lord. So you shall stand like a rock amid the surging waves of error and ungodliness which rage around us. That was Spurgeon writing in the late 19th century. If his words were true then, they are so much more true today. And the word in our families is so much more needful. Now, who is it within the family whose responsibility it is to make sure that the children grow in godliness? Well, the children, of course, they're going to go out and find... No, that's not the case. Obviously not. Oh, then it must be mom, right? No. Whose responsibility is it in a family? It's the father. The father is intended to be the priest of the household, Old Testament and New Testament. Ephesians 6.4, and you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. <clears throat> Doug Kelly wrote this. He said, family religion, which depends not a little on the household head daily leading the family before God in worship, is one of the most powerful structures of the covenant keeping God has given for the expansion of redemption through the generations so that countless multitudes may be brought into communion with and worship of the living God in the face of Jesus Christ. I would urge you to actually meditate, fathers particularly, 
on the Sabbath meditation. I'm not going to read it out loud to you. You can read it for yourself and then ponder these words and how you're going to go about implementing in your family. But the American Directory of Family Worship, which uh, started out this way. This is Presbyterians of old talking about how the religion of Christianity is going to be spread in America. It said family worship, which ought to be performed by every family ordinarily morning and evening, consists in prayer, reading the scriptures, and singing praises. The head of the family who is to lead in this service ought to be careful that all the members of his family uh, household duly attend and that none withdraw themselves unnecessarily from any part of family worship. It's your instruction, brothers, that is so very critical. Now, if you're going to instruct your family in the principles of religion, what does this assume? It assumes that you know the principles of religion. Nothing is more embarrassing than teaching a subject you don't understand or know anything about. Trust me. I hate to admit this when the principal of the school that I used to teach in is sitting here. I don't understand the rules of English. I speak English by ear. Okay, so um, I would ask my wife, quick, I'm teaching today. What's a preposition again? And she would sit me down and say, oh, you fool. Okay, no, she would never say that. <laughs> she would go over these things and I'd be like, okay, I think I got it. I think I got it. And then I lived in fear that the kids would realize that they had been homeschooled better than I had been public school educated on these matters. Brothers, if we're going to teach religion to our families, we need to learn it ourselves. And that means we have to open up the word in our own personal devotions. And we actually have to go to systematic theologies, helpful guides like spiritual disciplines of, for the Christian life. We need to read them. And then having taken these things, having digested them, then we need to give them to our kids. Do you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, and this is a horrible analogy. I'm so sorry. Hopefully, though, it'll, it'll fix in your mind. You, you, one of my favorite documentaries ever, it's almost hypnotic uh, to watch it. And, of course, it's got the soothing voice of Morgan Freeman. He can make anything better, isn't it? And so as the world dies in a nuclear holocaust, we bid farewell. You know, the, it, it could be any subject. And you'd be like, oh, yeah, that's Morgan Freeman, you know, the guy from Sesame Street. <laughs> what were we discussing again? Anyway, the documentary, I'll get to it, was Penguins. It was about the, the life of Antarctic penguins. And there's this period during which uh, the dad takes care of the, of the baby. He incubates the egg. Um, and then he takes care of the, uh, after the egg hatches, he takes care of the, the child and he gives it its first meals. How does he do that? Well, he stuffs himself full prior to getting there. The mom is starving to death by the time he arrives, so she has to make it back to the, uh, the ice floes as quickly as possible and begin fishing herself. How does he feed the kids? Does anybody know? He throws up. He regurgitates fish guts for the children to eat. I hate to put it this way. That's what we have to do, brothers. <laughs> Not regurgitate fish guts for our kids. But we have to bring up the things that we've taken in ourselves so our children can grow in grace. It's not your responsibility, mothers, to make sure that your children are Christian. That is something that you will take part in, but ultimately it's your husband's responsibility. What you can do, though, is encourage him to take up that responsibility with full, full faith and vigor, to, to, to push him in the right direction. And even if you don't have kids still living in the house, does that mean family worship stops? 
No. Or if you don't have children yet, do we not do family worship? No, of course not. One of the, the great things that um, God blessed us incidentally, that uh, we didn't, uh, I, neither my wife nor I grew up in a family that did family worship. Where did we learn about family worship, therefore? We learned about it in our pastor's house. He invited us in and he sat us in the circle and we listened as he taught his family, as he oversaw family worship and as his wife accompanied him. And we watched as their, their young daughters and their young son listened and they took these things in. And then we patterned our family worship, even just as husband and wife, on their family worship. And so when we did have kids, we were able to integrate our children into that family worship. And in turn, our children learned how to sit under the preaching of the word. One of the reasons why so many kids cannot sit through a church service is because they weren't trained to worship at home. And when we send them out to children's church, which never existed in the ancient church, children's church did not exist until the 20th century, what are we teaching them? We're teaching them how to be entertained for a little while. It shouldn't surprise us that children's church has morphed into adult children's church where people have to be entertained in order to get them to come back Sunday after Sunday. Because it's no longer revelation but visible stimuli. If I teach people to be looking for puppet shows and clowns and... That's what they're going to have. Lasers and smoke machines and blah, blah, blah. That, that's what they're going to want. And they're going to want more of it. So they're going to want me to come in with a zip line on Sunday morning to get here and things like that. But it's foolishness. What we need to do is get back to actually training up our children in the way they should go and teaching them from the word of God. Now, one of the things that I would remind you here is that you saw in Deuteronomy 6 that there was this Verses 21 and 20 through 25, it, there's a question and an answer. What is this called? When somebody asks a question, then somebody gives the answer. This is called, in religious instruction, we call it catechism. Very good. So from the very beginning, children were being catechized. They were being taught the religion via catechism. Now, in this original integrated catechism, they would see that their father was doing these things, and then they would ask, why would we do these things? And then they became normed. It became something that they were expected to ask. As a matter of fact, for instance, even in the Passover service that Jews still go through today, there are a series of questions. Why do we do this? Why do we eat this? Why do we not eat that? And so on. What does this mean? And then the answer is given. Catechism, catechesis, has been a vital part of our religion virtually forever, but lost. We need to regain it. We need to be teaching our children the, the, the children's catechism, for instance. That's what our Sunday school was based on. Or the shorter catechism, which was designed for children. I'm not going to ask you any longer to learn the larger catechism, which is immense and very difficult to, uh, to read. But notice this. Uh, the answer to those catechetical questions that the father gives is based upon his intimate knowledge of the answers, the correct answers. He doesn't simply say, because the Lord said so, end of argument. He makes a theological explanation for why we do these things and their purpose. That is the only thing that will satisfy the intellectual needs of your child. Even if it doesn't convert his heart, at least they will understand that is a full answer to the question. Christopher Wright points out, uh, if we say, because the Lord said so, end of argument, he says, if this is all that is given of explanation, the son might very well give Pharaoh's response, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And we tend to, I think, in religious matters, we tend to fall back too far, uh, too often, 
on that answer because I said so. Or even sometimes because God said so. We need to be able to answer the questions, why? And the catechism gives us the ability to do that in a wonderful way. But we also need to, and I can't emphasize this enough, we need to be also not simply talking about the abstract, you know, spiritual doctrines contained within the scriptures and teaching our children systematic theology. We need to be doing that, absolutely. But we need to be also explaining to them what the Lord has done in our lives, how he has worked in our case. We remember that a generation rose up that knew not the Lord nor his works. They didn't know the things that God had done for them. He didn't know, they didn't know about how he had parted the Red Sea. They didn't know how he had parted the Jordan. They didn't know how the, the walls of Jericho had fallen down. They didn't know how their parents had been saved. Do your parents, do your parents, do your, hopefully your parents, do your kids know how you were saved? Do they? Spurgeon says this, he says, and cannot we tell our children what God has done for us? How he brought us out of our spiritual captivity and how in his almighty love he has brought us into his church and will surely bring us into the glory above. May God grant us grace to speak about these things without diffidence, with great confidence to tell our children of what he has done. Now, I do want to give you uh, a couple of applications in answer to some questions that are pressing. What if, what if dad isn't able to do it, either because he's not a Christian, that happens, or because he's no longer present, that happens too. Well, then, uh, mom has to take over that responsibility. It becomes the mother's responsibility to, to teach their children. The New Testament church, as you know, included children with uh, their parents as members of the body, but some of those children had not been instructed by their fathers. They had been instructed by their mothers. We remember the example of uh, Timothy, who was instructed by who? Does anybody remember? His mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice. They were the ones who instructed him in the faith. And you remember it's because of that that Paul was able to write these things. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you as well. And then 2 Timothy 3.14, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Do you see, Paul was able to build on a foundation that had been laid by Lois and Eunice in the word of God. Mothers, you can do this with God's help. You can do it. It's not optimal, obviously, to have a mom teaching the kids, but she can do it because God will be with you through this process. Most importantly, remember this. As you go about teaching, don't let it become a drudgery. One of the, the, the great problems that occasionally happens within family worship, and, and as a simple outline for family worship, all you really need to do is, is pray, read the scriptures, maybe recite the catechism as you get a little more advanced, and sing, but also explain the scriptures to your kids. Don't just read the verses and then leave them naked, so to speak, but, but unpack them for your children so that they get a better understanding of them. Ask questions to make sure that they're, they're listening and ask the little ones questions as well because the older ones will hog all the answers if you don't. It's just the way it works. But spend time doing that on a regular basis and you will see effects in it. And remember this. Nothing other than the word of God has the power to save the souls of those kids. 
You can bring them to church. You can baptize them. You can plant them in a nice environment. You can make sure their school is a good one where you have teachers and headmasters who love the Lord. But unless you teach them the word of God and set before them the gospel and the peril that they're in by nature, because we're all born dead in sins and trespasses, even our beloved children, unless we set before them the importance of closing with the Lord, then what Paul warns us, how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard will be the case within our family. And this is the amazing thing, and I, I, I need to press this upon you. I have visited families in this church where the kids don't understand the gospel. Not at all. They're not hearing it. Now, I, I reflect whenever I make that, I, I need to simplify the gospel presentation. I, I need to, to bring the, the gospel, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, more deliberately to the kids. It gets me to change my thinking. But if your kids can't tell you, and quiz them. Take them home today and say, all right, son, daughter, I'm an unbeliever. Tell me the gospel. Tell me how I need to be saved. Tell me, tell me where I am now outside of Christ and what needs to happen in my life. Ask them that question. Can they explain it to you? If they can't, then it's not just my problem. It is my problem. You should tell me, you know, Feel free to come back and say, you're not doing a good enough job preaching to my son or daughter. I want you to get better in the next year. And I'll take that to heart. But are you part of this? Yeah. If your kids can't explain the gospel, they have no clue about it, then you need to redress that situation. And you need to do so as quickly as you possibly can. Brothers and sisters, we have great promises made to us in the word of God again and again. But if we neglect so great a salvation, what hope do we have and what hope do our children have? We need to be explaining these things to them, not laughingly saying, my kids are pagans as you probably expect. You know, that's, that's a tragedy. It's a tragedy when our, our households are not going to continue on in the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. Because we're saying our children have a Christless eternity in hell ahead of them. That's nothing to laugh about or, or to set aside. It should be the case that we're constantly desiring, seeking that the next generation would grow up loving the Lord, closing with Him, and then passing that on to their children in turn so that the faith, once we're all delivered to the saints, would not die out in our family line. We know the church will continue forever and ever. Jesus has given that absolute guarantee, but will it continue in our families? The question will depend upon whether or not we teach our children well. Let's go before the Lord and let's ask him to help us in the coming year. Lord, we confess to you freely and fully we have not been as diligent as we should in raising up the next generation or in having family worship or in gathering as fathers and mothers, as husbands and wives, as mothers and sons, as mothers and daughters, fathers and daughters, fathers and sons, whatever combination, Lord. We have not been diligent enough in passing on the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. And we should be, Lord, because this is the only faith that will save. And we know the world isn't going to teach them these things. And we know, Lord, that church, as wonderful as it is, is not going to be enough. They are being steeped. They are being immersed in all sorts of vileness. The Chinese Communist Party has an application designed to make them <laughs> into mindless atheists. And it puts it on their phones and they scroll through it all day long. 
And that will not make them into Christians. Quite the opposite. Lord, if we are going to, to push back against that, that tsunami of darkness, then we must be diligent in learning the truth ourselves. We must be people of the light. We must be salt and light in our own households. I pray you would make us that. Help us as fathers to, to once again reestablish the idea that we are the pastors of that particular household, the bishops of our little flock in that place, the episcopoi, the overseers. Lord, help us to, to stop with the foolishness that it's a woman's responsibility to raise up the children in the knowledge of Christ. It is our responsibility. Help us, O oh Lord, therefore, to help our wives and to take back some of the responsibilities you gave us, to take them off her plate and put them back on ours. Help us to be more deliberate in living our lives for you so that they might see the truth of the Christian faith. I remember that, uh, that confession made by a young man to his father when he said to him, Dad, I remember even as a three-year-old, seeing the tears streaming from your face as you taught us in family worship. And I knew at that moment that Christianity was true. Lord, please help us to show our children by how we live and how we teach that you are the living God and that you have made a way of redemption for us through your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.